Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and make your way to Philippians chapter 1. Great to be here with you. Uh, no, there's no baby yet. Um, I know. Back with us with the, this evening, she's here. And uh, just make sure no one makes any loud noises, no sudden movements or anything. We don't want, you know, anything terrible to happen. Um, so, here we are talking about Philippians. Uh, John did a great job last week taking us through the introduction of the book in the first 12 verses, or 11 verses rather. And what I want to do is I want to pick up where John ended last week in verse 12. And I'm going to finish out the, uh, the chapter. And as we do, what I want to do is um, I want to start with asking, what is the main idea of the book? You know, often what Paul will do is he'll kind of put a thesis statement right in the middle of the first chapter of a, of a letter. I think we have a thesis there. I think we have a main idea, a main point of the book that he wants to unpack throughout the letter of Philippians. So let's go right to it. By the way, if you don't have a sheet uh, with you, uh, we have more in the back. I'm sure people would love to hand those to you. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be, we'll be done here at around 7.15, 7.20, uh, but we'll kind of see how the Spirit leads us. Some of you don't, don't like that. You're like, 720 spirit. All right. What's the main point of the book? I think it's Philippians 1, verse 27. I think it's Philippians 1, verse 27. Take a look at it with me. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, Live gospelly. Live out the implications of the gospel. I think that might be the main point of Philippians, the gospel. So in chapter 1, what he's going to say is, look, the gospel affects how you view your circumstances. Paul is in prison. So look, I am put here for the sake of Christ. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is again. I'm put here in prison in a Roman jail cell for Christ. The gospel has radically shaped how you might circumstances. But then in chapter 2, you have the gospel and humility. The gospel ought to make us humble. Why is that? Well, because Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? He made himself nothing. So you have Timothy and you have Paphroditus who exemplify humility, live gospelly. In chapter 3, the gospel ought to make you count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. The gospel should help you to press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then you get to chapter 4. You have this uh, conflict between these two ladies in the church. I think his point is this. The gospel should make you reconcile with fellow believers whose names are written in the book of life. It should motivate you to give toward missions and missionaries. It's, it's the gospel that brings Paul contentment in any and every circumstance. It's the gospel that strengthens him. He can do all things through Christ. He strengthens him. It's the gospel. The gospel. I think that's the main point of the book. That what Paul wants to do is he wants to expound on the gospel. And he wants to tell these Philippians to live gospelly. So it's the main point of the book. And if you're a believer, it should be the main point of your life as well. The gospel. The gospel ought to be the main point, main point of a believer's life. So I'll do this. I'll walk through the, uh, the text, and we'll kind of follow the outline, 
and all I'll do, I'll use that one to kind of have some, some talking points. So let's look at the first, the first section, verses 12 through 14, chapter 1. Let's call it gospel progress. Gospel progress. See, the, see how the gospel goes forward. I'll make a few points here. First one is this. Gospel progress is resilient. Gospel progress is resilient. We're going to meet Paul in prison. Look what he says in verse 12. Now, most times people would say, I'm in prison, it's terrible, please help me. That's not what Paul says. Verse 12, he writes this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Okay, so, so he's in prison in Rome. He's not concerned about his circumstances. Why? Because he sees everything through the lens of the gospel. And this is not the first time we've seen this in Paul. Paul's always looking through the lens of the gospel. I'll give you an example. Uh, take a look at 2 Timothy 2. We have it on the screen. 2 Timothy 2, look at verses 8 through 10. He says this. I want you to know, brothers, that, sorry, First Philippians, where am I? 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. He says, uh, I'll turn there. Okay. There it is? Okay, I'll read it. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So what Paul is saying is, look, even though I'm bound, the gospel's not bound. The Word of God continues to go forward. The Word of God continues to progress. See it also in Acts 20, verse 24. Paul says, I don't count my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and complete the work that he gave me to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul views the gospel as resilient. You ever notice how something big, before something big ever happens in the book of Acts, there is usually some sort of setback. In the book of Acts, almost without fail, before something big happens, there's often some sort of setback. Go ahead and, in your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts. Look with me in chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, take a look at verse 1. See the setback in verse 1 and see the conclusion in verse 7. Verse 1 says this, Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There's just a few chapters removed of, that, of them having everything in common. And now we have a dispute. And then, look, so they're going to resolve the dispute. They're going to appoint some, some, some deacons and see what happens in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So setback leads to this gospel progress. Take a look at me in, in Acts. Look at me in chapter 7. Look at verse 60. Of course, it's the famous story of Stephen being stoned. But what we often overlook is what happened afterwards. So take a look at me in chapter 7. Look at verse 60. It says this, And falling to his knees, 
he, that's Stephen, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he has said this, he fell asleep. Verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And I'll fast forward to verse 25. What happens after a great persecution arises? Verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You've got to keep in mind, what Luke wants to do is this. The gospel goes to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, end of the earth. What looked like a setback was a sovereign plan of God. So persecution comes, hardship comes, yet the gospel is resilient. Resilient. Meaning, whatever you're going through, it's an opportunity for the gospel, isn't it? Any difficulty, any setback, if you can look at that through the lens of the gospel, maybe it's the job you hate. Maybe it's a relationship that's been strained. Maybe it's a, if you're a student, it's a class you failed. In fact, I was talking to a student this morning, uh, this morning uh, for, for breakfast. He said to me, I failed a class last semester, and I'm taking it over this summer, um, and I'm hoping that I can share the gospel with some new people in my class. I thought, man, what a great way to redeem the fact that you failed a class. So that's great, that's great. <clears throat> resilient. The gospel is resilient. Paul looks at his setback through the lens of the gospel. Resilient. But also, gospel progress is aggressive. So turn back to Philippians. Take a look at how aggressive our gospel is. That it doesn't just sit with one type of person. Philippians chapter 1. Take a look with me in verse 13. So that it has become known that the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And the word imprisonment, it has the idea of chain. Literally, it could be translated as, as chains. My chains are for Christ. Now, a prisoner's chains were usually a symbol of Caesar's power. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is flipping that on its head. He's saying, my chains are a demonstration of Christ's power. Not Caesar. Now, an imperial guard, this was a high-standing official in the Roman government. Paul is saying that, that this gospel is so aggressive, so bold, so not given to easiness, that even high-ranking officials hear the gospel from this prisoner named Paul. Meaning, think about it. Who does God want to reach through your life? For Paul, he's saying, look, I got an imperial guard. A high-ranking official has heard the gospel. So for you, who, who in your life does God want to reach with the gospel? Who, what person outside of what you would think is your sphere of influence is God calling you to reach with the gospel? You know, Peter O'Brien, he is a commentator on the book of Philippians, he said this about, about Paul's resolve. He says, Paul's focus on Christ made him an expert at reframing his experience 
so that the negative became a positive. His chains could easily be viewed as a tragic end to a brilliant career, a restriction of a gifted apostle, and an outrageous injustice against a Roman citizen. Instead of being led by his chains to a negative outlook, Paul used his chains to lead his guards to the knowledge of Christ. He valued his chains as evidence of his union with Christ. So notice how our gospel is aggressive. But also, it's contagious. See what happens next in the text. See how contagious this gospel is. Look at me in verse 14. So Paul's in prison, and there's this effect that his imprisonment is happening on other believers. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Let me put it this way. If Paul can preach the gospel in prison, we can preach the gospel at work. If Paul can be chained for Christ, we can be embarrassed for Christ, right? If Paul can leverage his circumstances, we can navigate adverse relationships for the gospel. And this is how you have a culture of evangelism. This idea of whatever you celebrate, you replicate. Right? When we celebrate evangelism, we're going to try to replicate it. So for these believers, they see Paul preaching the gospel, suffering well, going to prison for the gospel, and then not stopping there, but preaching the gospel even in a Roman jail cell. And Paul says, but that encouraged them. They are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Contagious. It's contagious. When you have someone in your life who you just know is a bold evangelist, that encourages you to, to follow suit. It's how you create a culture of evangelism. Contagious. But also, notice how the gospel um, has a different perspective. You have a different perspective because of this gospel. What do we see is next is this. See the point of the gospel. Let's get to the center of it. What exactly is the center, the sum total of the gospel? Look with me in verse 15. Just four, four precious words. Here they are. Some indeed preach Christ. Pause. Jesus is the main point of the gospel. Jesus, Christ, he is the irreducible minimum. To preach the gospel is to preach Christ. It is to preach his sinless life. It is to preach his substitutionary death. It is to preach his victorious resurrection. It is to proclaim that Jesus Christ has absolute authority over planet Earth and the stars. To preach the gospel is to preach Christ. He is the point of the gospel and he's the hero of the book. So the question for us would be this. Is Jesus the hero of your life? Is Jesus the main point of your life? Does your life exist to preach Christ? Some indeed preach Christ. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is the main point 
of the gospel. So see the point of the gospel. And also, take a look at the preachers of the gospel. This is an interesting part. Paul is going to show that there are two types of preachers of this gospel. Okay, two types of people. And what's strange is this. They're both Christians. Do you know what I mean? Look at me in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Because you have two groups, the good guys and the bad guys. Yet, the bad guys are still Christians. However, they're preaching out of selfish ambition. They're jealous. He doesn't tell us why they're jealous. I mean, maybe they're jealous because of Paul's accomplishments. Maybe they're jealous because of Paul's fame. Maybe they're jealous because of Paul's unique status as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Wherever it may be, they're jealous. And they're happy. <laughs> it's crazy. They're actually happy that Paul is in prison. It is the epitome of friendly fire. Now, before we, before we look down at these people, um, let me make this point. Let's just remember, Paul wasn't necessarily the easiest person to get along with. I mean, remember his whole conflict with Mark? Remember this? Acts 15, let me read it to you. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, who is called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. So here's what happened. Paul, Barnabas are partners in the gospel. Barnabas says, let's take my cousin Mark. Paul says, no, 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 Mark got scared of Pamphylia and ran away from us. I don't like Mark. And then Barnabas said, but he's my family. And then Paul said, well, tough. And they split. I just won. I got plenty. Remember Paul with uh, Peter? Remember this in Galatians 2.11? When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. He was fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that Peter's conduct was not in step with the gospel, I said to him before all of them, If you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So again, Paul is not afraid of conflict. I got one more. Galatians 3.1, he calls him a name. Just, just calls him a name. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? So again, I'm not excusing the, the uh, jealousy. All I'm saying is this. I can see why someone might not like Paul. That's all I'm saying. Either way. 
Either way, Paul fights through the fact that there are people who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, and he wants to see the gospel advance. He doesn't much matter. It doesn't much matter to him, his, his reputation. See what I mean in verse 18. See the proclamation of the gospel. That's all Paul cares about, the proclamation of this gospel. He is not concerned, not overly concerned, with his reputation among the brothers. Look at me in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For Paul, even though there are people preaching out of selfish ambition, they're jealous, they don't like Paul, they're happy he's in prison, he's saying, well, are they preaching Christ? Great, I rejoice in that. I mean, this guy is untouchable. Think about it. If, if God can work through prison chains, surely he can work through selfish preachers. The gospel is that powerful. That powerful. In fact, let's take a look at the gospel power. There's a section 1, 19 through 30. Take a look at the power of the gospel. Gospel power. Give you a few things to think about. Let's take a look at how there's power through prayer. Power through prayer. Look with me in verse 19. Remember, Paul's in prison. It says this, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers, you Philippians, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Your prayers. Prayers. Paul. This is crazy to me. Paul doesn't say, let's create a heist, right? Let's do a prison break. Let's get me out of this, the, these chains. No, no, no. Hey, guys, just pray. <laughs> That's it. Pray. I'm sure that if you pray, if you ask God Almighty, that's probably better than any plan you could devise. He leans on prayer. If you're a believer, you can pray. You have access to God by faith. We have an unlimited access to an eternal God by faith. Power through prayer. Ian Bounds, he uh, wrote a book called Power Through Prayer. Let me read you a quote. He says this. This is about the, the interplay between the, uh, prayer and, and preaching. It says this. Prayer to the preacher is not simply the duty of his profession, privilege, but it is a necessity. Air is not more necessary to the lungs than prayer is to the preacher. It is absolutely necessary for the preacher to pray. It is an absolute necessity that the preacher be prayed for. These two propositions are wedded in a union which ought never to be divorced. The preacher must pray and the preacher must be prayed for. Power through prayer. Prayer. But there's also another element to this help. Luke says verse 19. He says, through your prayers, and here it is, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This will turn out for my deliverance. Meaning, the Holy Spirit is our helper. Think of it this way. The Holy Spirit makes ministry easier. John 3.8, he blows where he wishes. 
The Holy Spirit, he opens doors. Read Acts, he opens hearts. Keep reading Acts, he opens eyes. The Holy Spirit is the engine. There is power in the Spirit. Think of this way. The Holy Spirit, he lives to make much of Christ. He is the humble one of the Trinity. He exists to, to glorify Christ. Jesus on John, he says, look, he says, he will glorify me, the Spirit, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit exists to make much of Christ. He loves to exalt Christ, which is why he's called in the text the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Which then means, if you live to make much of Christ, you and the Spirit have a lot in common. You make a powerful team if you exist to make much of Christ. Power in the Spirit. But also, there's power in Christ, isn't there? Look at me in verse 20. Verse 20, power in Christ. Paul says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's a famous verse. Ready for it? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Meaning, the foundation, the center, the purpose, the direction, the the power, and the meaning of Paul's life is Jesus. For Paul, living, breathing, existing is about Jesus. What about dying, Paul? What about dying? That's still about Jesus. It's gain. I get to be with Jesus. The gospel, it gives us power to live every moment for Jesus. And then when you stop living, guess what? More Jesus. Dies gain. Application. There are a lot of people who are willing to die for Jesus, but not quite live for Jesus. Yes, I'll give my life to you, Jesus. Yes, when when I die, I'll go to heaven and be great. I will die for Jesus. What about about tomorrow? What about right now? Are you living every day for Jesus? Look, it's not just the dying for Christ that's impressive. It's the living every moment of every day for Jesus that's truly admirable. Live for Jesus and die for Jesus. For me, to live, Christ. To die, gain, more Christ. There's power in Christ to live. There's another point here. Power for ministry. Power for ministry. Paul is going to give us the, um, the secret, almost, to his, his ministry. Look at me in verse 22. It says this. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I, shall not, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ because that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I'll continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. For Paul, he believed that he was put on this earth for the gospel. His mentality is this. If I'm still breathing, God's not done with me. I'm here. It's about working. The gospel 
Spirit does. It gives you a new urgency and a new priority. Urgency and a priority. Urgency. We must leverage every day of our lives for the gospel. There's an urgency behind the gospel, but also there's a priority. The fact that a holy God is reconciling sinners to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, is the most, is the most important reality of my life. It is above every other thing I do. Ministry. Power for ministry. But also, there's power in the church. Power in the church. What Paul wants to do, he wants to end this chapter looking at the church and say, all right, church, what about you? The gospel even empowers you. Do you know what I mean? The gospel empowers the church to pursue three things. The first one is holiness. Holiness. See how the gospel is empowering them towards holiness. Verse 27. Only... Let your manner of life, get this, strange phrase, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Meaning, the gospel is the standard for morality. It's not southern hospitality. It's the gospel. Live your lives worthy of the gospel. Power for holiness. The gospel is the standard. But also, the gospel empowers church to pursue Unity. Unity. Keep reading. Verse 27. So that whether I come and I see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you all that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Unity. Think of it this way. The Trinity. God. The Trinity contains unity within diversity. Right? One God, three persons. Father, Son, Spirit. God. Unity within diversity. So does the church. We're one church. And boy, we look different. Unity within diversity. And what Paul is saying is to a watching world, that's powerful. Look at all these different people with one cause, striving side by side for faith in the gospel. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 3.8, he says this, This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Unity amidst diversity is a powerful indicator that something supernatural has happened here. And Paul is calling the church to be one, one body, one spirit, one mind, and yet there are many members. Sounds like First Corinthians, doesn't it? One body, many members. The foot is not the eye, the eye is not the hand, and yet they are one body. Paul wants the Philippians to be known for their unity. Unity. But there's one more thing that the gospel empowers the church to pursue. It's steadfastness. Steadfastness. In Philippi, there's always, there's never been a time when being a Christian was popular. A true Christian, at least. And this is no different. This church is going through a difficult time. Take a look at me in verse 28. It says this. 
and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Meaning, Christians have always been those who have people who oppose them. We've always had people who opposed us. We are those who advance the view, Nero isn't Lord. Caesar isn't Lord. Whoever the president is, isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now that view is popular in these four walls we call a church, but out there it's not so popular. And here is Paul saying, I, I want you to suffer well. I don't want you to shrink back from the offensiveness of the gospel. In fact, embrace it. He says, it has been granted to you. Meaning, God gave this to you. God gave you this persecution. God gave you this suffering. God gave you this hardship. Christians have always been people who've been opposed. Put it this way. He's saying, you can't identify with Jesus' crown unless you pick up his cross. He says, it's been granted to you. You can't just believe, see that? Not just to believe in him. Not, not only believe in him, but also, but also, suffer for his sake. And that might be the most gospel-fluent statement Paul ever uttered. The church is empowered by the gospel to pursue holiness, unity, and steadfastness. And all of this is through the power of the gospel. The gospel. I think the gospel is the main point of Philippians chapter 1, maybe the whole book. Let's end here and I'll, I'll say a word of prayer and we'll be on our way. <clears throat> and so, Lord, we do love the gospel. We love that there is a gospel that says a good and holy God is pursuing sinners because he loves them, and he has sent his son to redeem them. And so, Lord, we ask that we'd be those who would live our lives worthy of this gospel. We pray that we would pursue unity. We pray that we would pursue steadfast God. We pray that we would have a gospel lens, that any circumstance we're going through, you might help us to, to view it through the lens of the gospel. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.